This sermon was recorded at Christ Church Overland Park, a congregation that seeks to be a people fully alive in God's kingdom. From the Gospel of Mark. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. The word of the Lord. All right, good morning. Uh, this morning, believe it or not, we're still in the season of Lent. I know it feels like it's Easter outside, but Easter is still four weeks away. Um, we have some time. I'm not complaining, but uh, we still have several more weeks. And during the season of Lent, here at Christchurch Mission, we're looking at each week at one of Jesus' last sayings that he spoke from the cross. There are seven of those sayings, and so we're doing five of them uh, in this series. So our task, you know, whether we like it or not, I think is to, for a prolonged amount of time, kind of fix our eyes on Christ on the cross. Like, can you imagine him there? You know, as uncomfortable as that is to, to hold before our, our eyes and minds and hearts, uh, Jesus on the cross. It's uncomfortable, I know, but I think as Christians, we're required to meditate on it. Um, I remember when I was a kid, speaking of uncomfortable, um, I went to, when I was quite little, I went to one of those, like, megachurch productions of, like, I don't know, Easter, like an Easter play, you know, have you guys ever been to something like this? And it's, like, big music and costumes, and it's a giant production, and it's a, it's a huge auditorium, and they put on a really big show, and it's, like, all the events of Holy Week, and then his crucifixion, crucifixion and resurrection, and, so, and it was like, for me as a young kid, it was hyper-realistic. Like, I remember they had Jesus down, like, laying on the stage, and they were, like, using this hammer to, like, hammer in the nails, and it was like, boom. There was, like, every swing of the hammer, like, the auditorium would reverberate with this boom. And every time the place boomed, I got a little queasier, I think, as a little kid. And I remember then they, like, when they finally raised Jesus up, and he was, you know, it was too realistic, let me say. And uh, as soon as he like was raised up, I just looked over at my dad and I was like, I don't feel good. And he was like, okay, 
let's get out of here. Uh, so we walked out into the hallway where I promptly fainted, um, which uh, is fine. I'm a fainter. But, uh, uh, but even as a kid, you know, it was like so uncomfortable for me to be exposed to like that kind of suffering of, of Jesus in that way. And so I know that during the season of Lent, and especially as we get closer to Holy Week, we experience some of that. Uh, but uh, I think we need to hold the cross before our gaze and see Jesus and his love for us there. So, uh, so we're doing these last sayings, and we come to our next one today. Uh, but I want to start by saying, by pointing out who each of these sayings is, um, is said to. Okay, they're all said by Jesus, but who are they said to? So week one, I think, week one was, uh, uh, I, truly, I tell you today you'll be with me in paradise. Remember that one from a couple of weeks ago? Who was that spoken to, everyone? The, yes, the criminal, the thief on the cross. That is Jesus speaking to him, saying, today you, thief, criminal, will be with me in, in paradise. Last week, Amanda preached here, and, um, and she did, uh, woman, here is your son, uh, and, and look, here is your mother. And, and who was that spoken to by Jesus? Who was it spoken to? John. Yeah, Mary, his mother, and John, the, the beloved disciple, the unnamed beloved disciple, uh, John, in that, that passage. So, so those are the first two. And then uh, this week is a little different. Who is the object of Christ's words today? Why have you forsaken me? Who is the object of Christ's words there? This isn't a trick question. It's God. He says it twice. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so here in this passage, Christ turns his gaze, not from looking down to the ground at his loved ones gathered there, his mom, John, others, not even looking across like parallel to where he is at the thieves, uh, the criminals crucified with him there. Now Christ lifts his eyes higher. He lifts his eyes to heaven and he prays to God. He addresses God. And this is our first of the last sayings of Jesus that are addressed to God, but it won't be our last of our last sayings that will be addressed to God. We'll see him talk to God and pray to him more. And he could have, I'd like to think, that Christ easily could have spoken these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, in the quietness of his spirit, in silence, but he didn't. He spoke them out loud to be heard by others, to be recorded, and then to be meditated on by us today. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are some pretty sacred words, I would say. Words prayed on the cross by Jesus addressing God. That is a pretty like sacred space. And we ought to pay attention actually anytime we hear Christ pray, shouldn't we? Uh, whenever we have his prayers recorded in scriptures, they ought to draw our attention. Those would be quite important things to look at. Um, we even say one of those prayers together every single week. You know, let us pray together in the words that Jesus taught us, saying, Our Father who art in heaven. Like these, when, when Christ prays to God, Christians take it very seriously <laughs> because we're like, well, maybe we might learn some things about how to pray from listening to Jesus, the perfect one, pray to God. And certainly we can learn some things from this little prayer about how to pray to God. In this prayer, I think Jesus teaches us that we can have unguarded honesty with God. 
unguarded honesty with God. I think that sometimes we think that reverence for God is incompatible with transparency with God. That adoring God is incompatible with questioning God. And these words of Christ on the cross, I think, shatter that notion. Jesus models that unguarded vulnerability with God can coexist with profound devotion to God. These things can be together. We'll dig into the words of this prayer in a second, but like, just take it on its face value. Like, is it okay to question God, a Christian might say. It's literally what Christ is doing here. He's asking a question of God. Some of us might think that a Christian ought not to kind of, I don't know how to put it, but like file an offense against God. Well, I hope you see that in this little prayer of Christ from the cross, that it is implied that God has forsaken him, that Jesus feels that God has forsaken him. And not just that he has, Jesus wants to know answers. Why, God? Why have you forsaken me? Now, maybe you don't have this problem, but I think some of us do. Some of us have picked up somewhere in our journey that our prayers to God should be guarded, careful, and we should beware of how free we are in our articulating our disappointments with God. That does not seem to be the model that Christ gives us in this short prayer of his from the cross. Look, certainly our posture with God should be humble and reverent, and certainly our questions that we ask God should should be asked in a way that draw us closer to God and not push us farther away from him. That would be true of Christ here. He's drawing closer to God, trying to find answers to his questions, not pushing him away. But love and mercy, or love and intimacy with God can coexist alongside boldness and confusion and questions. That, I think, is the first observation we can make from this short prayer of Christ on the cross. Okay, that's, that's kind of like my intro, sorry. <laughs> like, we haven't even gotten into it yet. Um, but because this, I think that's a very important observation to make. But this passage and this line of Jesus's is not fundamentally about Jesus went through something hard and then he prayed to God and questioned him. And we go through things that are hard and we can pray to God and question him. That's all very true. But that's not, there's so much more happening here in this particular prayer. Uh, so I want to like dig into that um, a little bit more. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One of the most moving and, uh, in my opinion, haunting and disturbing lines in scripture. So let's talk about it under kind of two headings. One will be the experience of forsakenness, and the second one will be the other side of forsakenness, okay? The experience of forsakenness and the other side of forsakenness. So what did Christ mean when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, oh I need to make one other quick tidbit from this story, just a little uh, nugget to share. Um, do you guys, did you notice that this is one of those passages where the ancient language is preserved in the passage, you know? Remember we had one of these a couple of months ago when Christ 
healed the, um, the little girl. And we talked about that together. And he said, you know, it was in the text that says he, that Jesus said, Talitha kum, little girl, get up. And we talked about how like, why, does, why do the writers sometimes include the original language? This is another one of those passage, uh, passages. Christ spoke Aramaic with his, you know, in, in his daily life. Uh, but the New Testament is written in Greek. And so this is one of those passages. Yeah, you can put it up. So, uh, you know, here it is. The writer, Mark, preserved it in its original language in Aramaic. And, you know, why did, why did he do that? And um, I think the best guess of Bible scholars is that those particular words spoken by Jesus have such, like, meaning and power like they those words Eloi Eloi lama sabachthani are like seared into the minds of those that were present that day that heard him say it and so they just record it in the original language and then uh and then they translate it anyway one of the things that stuck out to me uh this week is that uh Italo, go to the next slide for a second did you catch this that when some of them standing there heard this they said listen he's calling Elijah maybe you've seen that before in the crucifixion narrative maybe you haven't um you know, I, I guess I always thought that was like, I kind of like skated past that little line and thought, oh, maybe that's referring to some like kind of uh, misunderstood prophecy, New Testament prophecy, Old Testament prophecy. Um, and there is some element of that here. But when I was reading this week, you know what they really talked about is how like just similar the words Eloi, Eloi are from the last, uh, each logo back, Eloi, Eloi are to the words, the, the name Elijah. And I asked a couple people this week, like, did it, am I the last one? Does everybody know that that uh, is, is that what everybody else was thinking when they read this passage? And several people were like, yeah, we've thought that the whole time. So maybe you have, maybe you didn't. Uh, I had never made that connection before that, that literally they might have just misunderstood him, you know, and were kind of like, oh, Eli, 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 he's calling for Elijah now. Anyway, so that's just a little, a little tidbit. Okay. What did Christ mean that he was forsaken by God? What did he mean? The word forsaken means abandoned. In what ways was Christ abandoned on the cross? Did Christ mean that he had been abandoned into the hands of his enemies, the cruel and oppressive Romans, who were now crucifying him, overseeing his crucifixion? Is that what he meant by, I've been abandoned? Well, sure, absolutely. Did he mean that he had been abandoned into the hands, actually, even of the people who were supposed to see him for who he was? You know, the, almost each crucifixion narrative talks about the presence of, like, religious people there at the crucifixion who are also heaping their insults on him. These were people, uh, the most devoutly religious of the day, It'd be akin to uh, pastors and seminary professors and sweet Sunday school teachers all standing at the foot of the cross, scorning Jesus. These were the people who the night before had celebrated the Passover meal together. They had retold the story of how God had saved their people from slavery. They had eaten the lamb that they had sacrificed to God. They had drunk from the cup, hoping and praying for the coming of the Messiah. These are the same people that now stand at the foot of the cross, scorning him. Is that what Christ meant by being abandoned? That he's been abandoned in, in, even by those people? I think yes, but more than that. 
Because Christ doesn't just say, my God, my God, why have I been abandoned? He says, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me, God? Now, look, theologians uh, have puzzled over this theological difficulty for centuries, and so we're probably not going to pin it down right here in the mission theater, okay? Um, But ultimately, theologians settle mostly on this mystery that Christ's suffering wasn't just physical or emotional, but that on the cross that Jesus, God himself, was in some way, or that he experienced or felt in some way separated from the Father, abandoned by him. Now, we have to be very careful with our language that we use as Christians when we talk about like theological difficulties like this, because on one hand, we would like to hold the orthodox teaching that all the members of the Trinity, the three members of the Trinity, are, have coexisted for all of eternity and cannot be separated. So we might say, ooh, that, how does that work? So then that makes us go over here to Jesus and say like, oh, well, Jesus was like fully God and fully man. And so maybe it was the man part of him that was abandoned, but the God part wasn't. But then we as Christians have to, we want to affirm the orthodox teaching that like, no, Christ is not like two parts that are like stuck together. He's fully God and fully man, and the two things cannot be separated. Here's what we can say. We can affirm what the passage seems to communicate, that Christ felt abandoned, that he experienced forsakenness. What exactly happened in the reality of the divine realm that day is a mystery to us. But in his love for us, as Christ suffered on the cross, he felt forsaken by God. Something in Christ's connection with the triune God was shaken that day on the cross. It's perplexing and confusing. But what is clear is this, is that this was no charade for our Lord. Christ is really suffering, not just physically, but in devastating abandonment. And he went through this experience for us. Uh, There's a cool, like, image here, I think, in this passage that might help us some to think about forsakenness and abandonment, and that is darkness. Did you catch in the passage that says darkness fell over the land uh, as Christ was being crucified? Now, while literal darkness came over the land that day, darkness and light are meaningful pictures of God's presence or absence with us. Darkness in the Old Testament in books like Exodus and books like Amos, they underscore like God's judgment and his like absence from us. And here at the cross, Jesus experiences uh, some of that. But conversely, we think of light, we like to think of light as a symbol of God's presence with us. You know, we light these candles. Marion lit these candles here. We, we light them every morning. Why? As a symbol of God's presence with us, to remind us that when we start the service, when we are come to, coming together, when two or three are gathered, that God is with us. We light these candles as a symbol of God's presence. I know many Christians that practice this actually in, uh, privately too. You know, they'll light a candle as a part of their devotion or prayer life as a symbol, just a sign to them of God's presence with them. 
Did you, um, have you guys like looked at the icons there out on the windows um, on our studio there? You know, we have this iconographer, Scott Erickson, who has done a piece of art for each of the last sayings, okay? If you haven't looked at them yet, you should look at them. They're out on the windows on Johnson Drive. And uh, there's a different image for each of the last sayings, and the, la the image for the one for today, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is a snuffed candle. And I, I don't know Scott Erickson, but I think that's an apt, like, piece of, uh, an apt metaphor, symbolizing God's, the, the feeling of God's absence from us. Uh, okay. That's the experience of forsakenness. Let's talk about the other side of forsakenness. Now, what I haven't mentioned yet at all, which you probably have picked up on, uh, is that this prayer of Christ, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is not his original words. He's quoting an Old Testament psalm, Psalm 22. Uh, Tom read it for us this morning. Maybe you picked up on it when Tom was reading. Jesus is quoting this old song, Psalm 22. And it was a well-known psalm to the Jewish people. It might have been the equivalent of Christ singing the opening lines to a beloved hymn like Amazing Grace on the cross. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, or something. Now when someone sings the opening lines to a well, well-known song, you don't have to hear them sing the whole song to like experience the fullness of the song. You know, when someone says amazing grace, how sweet the sound, you could also, you're also hearing in your head when we've been there 10,000 years, am I right? You know, uh, so like when someone, it, they can just say the line and like embody kind of the spirit of the whole thing, even if they don't say all of that. So Christ, when he said that first line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The, the people listening there that day, like heard not just that line from Psalm 22, but much more of the psalm. And it's a devastating psalm. Uh, Tom read it for us, but let me pull it up again. This is a, a part of it. Let's go um, roaring lions. Roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Let's go to the next one. Dogs surrounded me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. The psalmist laments and foreshadows the devastation of the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is like all the rest of these lines are ringing in the ears of those who hear Christ pray that prayer. It is a powerful, powerful Old Testament prayer of lament. But the people knew the whole psalm. This was just part of the psalm, by the way. And when Christ said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They knew it all the way to the end. And the part that we didn't read it contains passages like this. For God has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Now, Christ could have prayed any Old Testament lament that doesn't resolve beautifully and redemptively like this one. 
There are no shortage of like, sorry, devastating Old Testament laments that Christ could have prayed that just leave you in despair. But he didn't pray any of those. He prayed this one. He quotes a song and speaks that speaks of the assuredness that God will not hide his face forever, that he will not abandon those who suffer, including Jesus, that there is redemption and a future on the other side of the cross. That is the song that Christ sang, the words that he prayed there on the cross, that there is life and hope on the other side of the experience of forsakenness. And the cross is the immovable guarantee of that truth. Amen? Amen.